from TomDispatch.com, this is TomCast. Interviews and insight from Tom Dispatch contributors for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of our post-9-11 world and a clear sense of how our global imperial system actually works. I'm Timothy McBain. Recently, I had the pleasure of speaking again with William Hartung, the director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy and author of Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex. We talked about what used to be referred to as the nuclear arms race, but today could be called the nuclear arms multiplayer game. In your article, you talk about how present the issue of nuclear destruction used to be in the American consciousness and how little it is part of our current culture. On the other side of that issue is the reality of nuclear threats. How has that changed over the same period? Well, I think you know, the biggest change is the... Uh U.S.-Russian, what used to be the U.S.-Soviet confrontation, is a bit in the background. Proliferation and instability, uh, places like Pakistan, Iran, North Korea, the possibility that other countries might decide to get into the nuclear business, means that you know we're less likely to have a worldwide nuclear war, but on a regional basis, probably the odds are higher than they were during the Cold War. And as you point out, the, the two main countries we hear about with with concern to nuclear arms are Iran and North Korea, at least in the media. How much of this is a legitimate concern and, and how much could possibly be simply setting up a pretext for a military conflict should the U.S. choose to engage in one? Well, I think the concerns are real, but, you know, wildly exaggerated. Iran, by some indications, may not have even decided whether to go all the way to a nuclear weapon as opposed to develop some capabilities that would let them do it you know, at some point down the road. So, you know, their ability to build a nuclear weapon, to miniaturize it, put it on a ballistic missile, reach any target that would be threatening to the U.S. or its allies is quite a bit down the road. So I think there's been a mixture of a genuine desire not to let Iran get a nuclear weapon and kind of, you know, whipping up enthusiasm or at least uh, the possibility politically of taking military action at some point. So it's it's been kind of this hybrid. Uh, in the case of North Korea, one of the big rationales that's been used really since the 90s is, you know, North Korea is going to be able to reach us with a ballistic missile. Therefore, we need this $10 billion a year or more uh, missile defense system. So once the Soviet Union was out of the picture, suddenly North Korea became almost the sole rationale uh, for missile defense, which has only recently changed with these somewhat absurd arguments in the House of Representatives to build a missile defense system on the East Coast. Is this even a possibility? I mean, considering the missiles used for deployment are not yet developed, I mean, is this even something that is worth worrying about or being concerned about? Well, I think either Iran or North Korea should be quite a bit down the list of concerns in terms of security. Things like, you know, another mass casualty terrorist attack, some sort of political implosion in Pakistan, uh, ongoing threats like climate change, which is likely to kill, injure, undermine the, the quality of life, and uh, otherwise create chaos uh, worldwide, you know, I think deserves much more attention than whether Iran gets a bomb five or ten years from now, because even if they had it, they'd be hard-pressed to use it without having their entire country devastated by either Israel or the United States. So I, I think it's just uh, Iran and North Korea are, are much too high on the threat list uh, compared to some of the other things we have to deal with. 
And kind of what you're talking about works outside of that idea of mutually assured destruction, because it's not really we're not really playing the same game in those cases. What what you're talking about the the threats that we should be more concerned about. But uh, going back to that idea of mutually assured destruction, I mean, it's one of those practices or ideas that that of course works until it doesn't. But you know, on the other hand, given that in the sixty seven years since the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we haven't seen the use of nuclear weapons. Is there any legitimate argument for major countries to make in defense of having nuclear weapons? I don't see any substantial reason to have perhaps more than a few hundred. There were some studies by professors at the Air War College suggesting that you know as few as 300 nuclear weapons in the United States would deter any other country from attacking the U.S. With, with nuclear weapons. So, you know, if the sort of deterrence game is the game to be played or that the U.S. is seeking to play, thousands of nuclear weapons would not be necessary, more in the range of hundreds. And there's even been arguments which are sort of have a mixed character from the point of view of, of global peace and security by people like Henry Kissinger and others who now say the U.S. can go to zero on nuclear weapons, but part of their argument is that the United States could devastate pretty much any adversary using advanced conventional systems. So it's still in kind of an aggressive posture, which I think would not reduce the um, incentive of some smaller countries to try to get nuclear weapons as a way to hold off a regime change uh, pushed by some of the major powers. So, for example, uh, Iraq, although it didn't have an active nuclear weapons program, part of the argument for regime change there related to weapons of mass destruction. Libya, which uh, gave up its nuclear program, Gaddafi ended up being overthrown. So, uh, you know, if you're a dictator sitting somewhere seeing what happened in Iraq and Libya, you might say, well, you know, maybe I need this nuclear weapon just as kind of insurance policy against some outside effort to overthrow my government. So in a kind of perverse way, I think, you know, over-preparing and having this kind of preemptive force doctrine, whether with nuclear or conventional weapons, gives some of the smaller states almost an incentive to, to get their own bombs. Could you compare the nuclear reduction rhetoric that we've heard over the past few years, or well, actually past couple decades, with how nuclear-armed countries are actually behaving in practice? You know, going back to the Cold War, there's certainly been substantial reductions. You know, there, there used to be maybe 70,000 nuclear weapons worldwide. Now there's more like 20,000. President Kennedy in the 60s was afraid there might be as many as two dozen nuclear powers, and now there are about eight and there's many other countries that could have gotten into the nuclear game that have chosen not to. But in recent years, you know, we had the New START Treaty, which I think was a good step, but a very modest step. You know, it went from 2,000 or so deployed warheads to 1,550, so about a third, you know, one-third reduction. But at the same time, uh, there are thousands of warheads in reserve. The United States arsenal is now about 5,000. So there's still nuclear overkill. There's more countries at least trying to get into the nuclear game and the notion of reductions has you know, proceeded at a very slow rate, given that it would only take a small number of these things to cause kind of unprecedented devastation. And eliminating nuclear weapons is, as, as you write in your article, a daunting task. And, and, of course, one without a simple solution. But what would you suggest is a solid first step, at least? Well, I think until uh, the U.S. and Russia go much lower, it's hard even to get the next step rolling. You know, because more than 90% of the world's nuclear warheads are possessed by the United States and Russia. So a country with 50 or 100 or a few hundred, as France and the U.K. have and China has, 
they're much less likely to even consider getting rid of their arsenals until the big players have come down quite a bit lower. But but that, that's where the I think the most difficult part would come into play. You would need some sort of you know detente between India and Pakistan. China and India would have to stop looking at each other you know as threats. Israel would somehow have to be willing to get rid of its nuclear weapons as part of perhaps a nuclear weapons-free zone in, in the Middle East. Uh, France and the UK would have to decide that you know that whatever deterrent value they think their few hundred weapons now have could be replaced uh, in some other way or is not worth it uh, strategically. So you would get down into regional politics, domestic politics of each of the nuclear powers. So it'd be a much more complex undertaking. But it, I don't think you could even get that started without major reductions You know, going much further by the U.S. and Russia. I would say the other thing that may have some impact on nuclear reductions is just the whole debate over the deficit and whether these things are affordable. You know, in and of itself, it may only trim a, you know, a delivery vehicle program here or perhaps a, you know, weapons factory there, both of which would be much to be welcome. But, uh, you know, I think Russia is feeling the pressure, China to some degree. So it's possible that the economic factor might at least be a reinforcing reason for countries to take another look at whether they need these large arsenals. To read William Hartung's article, Beyond Nuclear Denial, How a World-Ending Weapon Disappeared from Our Lives But Not Our World, please visit TomDispatch.com. You can also find William's book, Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, at Amazon.com or at any quality bookstore near you. I'm Timothy McBain, and until we meet again, thanks for listening.